We now continue with an interview about grief and loss from Joy Van Staldunian, our um, interviewer who interviewed yours truly in relation to um, childbirth and loss. Uh, her podcast is called Love and Loss, and they've been featuring um, different guests, social workers, theologians, uh, activists and people who have had an experience losing a child in early uh, pregnancy or later um, and we just want to uh, offer our support and um, be there for those who have had that type of um, challenge in their life and as a chaplain I uh, work in pediatrics and see people uh, go through many um, difficulties uh, so I support the families and the children but it's mostly the families that I am able to uh, be there for so we wanted to feature that in this interview and discuss ways to heal from uh, such a painful experience uh, as uh, I was sharing this interview is um, led by Joy Van Staldunian and is interviewing me as a pediatric chaplain. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of the Love and Loss podcast. Today we have Chaplain David. Welcome. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, David, I, I'm sure you can imagine we don't get enough dads on the show. And so it's just such an honor um, to have men speak out about the experience of pregnancy and infant loss. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you. I know it's an important subject. Yeah, it is. And so uh, I, I explained to you and to the listener, the listeners know, we always open up with who is your mom's inspiration, but that's kind of one-sided, right? So I want to, <laughs> I want to be a little more inclusive. Just tell us a parent who inspires you. Well, you know how, um, not everybody has a good relationship with their parents or they have ups and downs with their um, parental figures. So for me, um, I had to kind of make my own way and find um, heroes or leaders that, that I connect with. And I know um, the more people dig in into people's lives, the more issues they find. And I guess it could be the same uh, for some of our parents. So uh, I was sharing with you before the interview that Martin Luther King uh, is someone that I look up to because of the impact that he had. And the more you study Martin Luther King, you know that he walked into a movement um, that he didn't start himself, mm. but he was able to communicate what the people were dealing with and the struggles that they needed to overcome. So to me, um, we need to find uh, role models that give us that, um, that ability to to foresee uh, the possibilities like visionaries because he didn't know where uh, the movement would go or how far he would be able to get it, but he was able to communicate really well uh, the plight of his people. So I hope that in a small way I can um, emulate that. And there are many people throughout history who, who have been able to do that, but usually they don't find out about their impact until after they die mm. or we don't find out about it. Uh, many of the artists that I, that I appreciate they uh, do well until after they died. So I hope I can make an impact while I'm still living. And 
that we have a legacy that we can pass on to the next generation. That's okay. I'm loving this because I actually hadn't, I always think of Martin Luther King Jr. As a, um, as a role model, as a pastor and as a, you know, activist, but I follow his daughter on Instagram and she is dynamite. She's amazing. And it shows, it speaks to him as a father, right. That he would inspire her to be the person she is. Definitely. And, that, and that's the hope of a parent that um, they can be a better version of ourselves. Um, mm, yeah. I only realized that not long ago because you know how in every generation there's things that you bring um, either the way you were raised or the uh, misgivings or um, kind of, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad negative traits that can be passed on to the next generation. Um, I think that the more we become enlightened and the more we, uh, come closer to where we should be, we should be passing on positive traits. And then the next generation can really uh, live those on and, and, and change the world for the better. And I think that would be my hope. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. I, I see the same um, in the way that I try and raise my child. So my living child, I should say. Um, Okay. So David, I wanted to dive in. I know you and your family have experienced some uh, early pregnancy loss. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was a difficult time in our um, marriage. Um, we have always struggled financially or with housing because of our choices. You know, in America, people say, uh, if you are um, not successful, that's on you. And success usually is considered to be financial success. Mm. So, but you get no, um, no break. You know, people don't, don't expect you to take a while to get established as, as a family and to have your own home and stuff like that. They expect you to have everything ready to go before you get married. That's why people are getting married older or um, there's just a lot of issues with stuff like that. So we had had our first child and she was about um, maybe two years old. And uh, we found out that um, my wife uh, was pregnant and it was a very stressful time because we were kind of, uh, between jobs and, and not really knowing what was going on. So um, when we found out that she had an early um, miscarriage, it was kind of a confusing time. Like it, it didn't hit us like some other families who have a lot of expectations put on, on that uh, new pregnancy. It was more like we had just found out and then we just lost uh, that, that child. So it was, um, it was like a very... Um, surreal situation for me. I know for the woman who's actually experiencing it, it's a, a deeper, more uh, difficult sorrow. But um, there was some, um, there was, you know, you always try to find um, a silver lining or a redeeming aspect of it. And for us, um, being prepared and, and having the the best environment, you can't always have the perfect environment where the next child comes, but you want to have, uh, you know, uh, a willingness and a, an ability to provide what seems right at that time. So it, it was a, a difficult situation altogether. And then to add it, we, we lost that, that opportunity mm. to have another kid in our family. But when um, the next child came, um, a lot of those concerns had gone away and, and we were in a better place. Mm. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't talk about also is that when you have a child in the hospital, you, you are filled with fears. Um, we had a, 
a very difficult experience having the first child because of all the fears that were put on our hearts uh, in relation to um, complications, things like that. And then our second child that was um, delivered, uh, we had her at home Mm. uh, with a midwife and it was a completely different experience. It was freeing, it was it was very natural and that's to me that that's those kind of like the lesson that we learned from the miscarriage that we experienced was that we weren't in a good place emotionally or physically to be able to to bring um, a child into this world and and we believe there was some of that 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 caused the miscarriage just being overly stressed or even having unforeseen um, illnesses or things happening at that time so it was a very complicated situation Yeah, it's super complicated. And I don't know if any of the listeners can maybe resonate with that because, um, for me, when I was early in my loss, like my early pregnancy loss, I was maybe became frustrated. I would hear people say that like, Oh, it wasn't, of course that if they say it to me, that's unfair. Right. (laughs) But I, I did have everything, you know, like, right. We had a nice house. We had, you know, the perfect dog, we, you know, like everything was lined up and then it, and then it didn't happen. Um, and yet that's my story and our stories are different and that's okay. So sometimes it can be hurtful when our, when our stories don't align, but they don't have to align. We're different people. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's good for people to hear your experience. Um, so, uh, as I said in the intro, uh, David is a chaplain and hospice is a gift. And I don't think enough people see it like that. They, they see it as this like giving up when really it's just this gift of time and this gift of honoring and experiencing a person fully. Um, so you do a lot of work with uh, children and infants. Is that right? Yes, I'm fortunate to have been given that uh, opportunity. Um, when I first started, I was just working with adults. Mm-hmm. And then it became available for me to assist with the pediatrics. Mm-hmm. And now I'm the full-time uh, chaplain for pediatrics. So we get, I told that I support family and patients from zero to 100 years old. Uh, oh, wow. So that is an interesting experience to see the whole gamut of the, the dying process. Yeah, it is the gamut. I know it's hard for a lot of people to... Um to think about that, to think about this being your job is just working with dying babies and children. Um, and yet there's something very sacred in that because within the ugly and within the difficulty, there's also a chance, um, to be truly present no matter their age. And, you know, when you start doing ministry, you always want to make huge impacts or, make um you know change someone's life but the more you get seasoned in this type of uh work you realize that whatever little you can do is a lot and if you cannot impact the child themselves or the the individual who's uh, dying you impact the family and you Mm -hmm. provide the the support that, that they might need and you might not ever get uh thank for it you might not ever see the results but you know that you're doing what's right at that time and just being someone to help navigate the medical system the uh the feelings the emotions that people go through it's a lot so uh, a couple of my friends are dead doulas and they oh yeah uh, um you know I, I i didn't really understand what a doula was until we had one and now i 
see a lot of similarities between a chaplain and a doula in the sense yes. of being an anchor for someone who's going through something that it is unexpected or different or even something they've already gone through, especially having children, but that uh, someone who can help navigate and have, um, you know, the ability to go back and forth between the, all these different systems and different uh, processes that you, you are dealing with. So having that, uh, you know, they call us the non-anxious presence uh, in the room makes a big difference. Yeah, a non-anxious presence in the room. I resonate with that. Um, so again, listeners know that I've served as a chaplain at Duke um, in in uh, pediatrics and labor and delivery. And um, yeah, to be a non-anxious presence, because even our nurses who were just, you know, top-notch. I mean, I have just the most respect for nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and every person that steps in that room. Um, they do it every day. And yet they are very, very involved in a lot of, um, the medical piece, right? Like they're, they're all in on that medical side. And so when you can be the non-anxious presence to kind of help hold the emotional, uh, trauma that a person and a family is experiencing, like it's so valuable. It's so valuable. Yeah. yeah the non-anxious presence that just really, that really resonates with me because it takes practice to get there. And it is a sacred responsibility because when you go through a chaplain school or, or CPE training, you learn to not bring your own stuff into the room, to, <laughs> yep. uh, really uh, empathize instead of, um, you know, bringing in um, the way that you would handle a situation, more putting yourself in their shoes based on their story and their experience. And it's, um, and it's when people are the most vulnerable. So um, you also find out how easy it, it is for some um, unscrupulous people to take advantage of those who are suffering yeah. because they are so raw. So mm -hmm. you have to be in a really good place. And I, I appreciate that they want us to be in, in a good standing with our faith community. They want us to be um, as well integrated as possible, because if not, you can really cause a mess and, and, and you see why there is so much harm that is done about by different types of ministers throughout all different religions yeah. uh, in manipulating or, or forcing people into stuff because they, they, they're sharing their heart and they're sharing their most intimate um, emotions. And, and that is something that needs to be protected and, and loved properly. And when you're working like you are with the, the loss of babies and children, um, a lot of their parents are kind of, they're almost living their theology like, um, well, I guess we're all living our theology, but in like real time, they're experiencing how do, how does, how do I make sense theologically with the world right now, whenever my whole world is crumbling. Right. So if they've been fed by their, um, religious body, a bad theology, I, I'm just going to say a bad theology <laughs> or a very toxic theology. It's, it's even more heart wrenching than losing a child because, there, um, they might have been told, oh, this is happening for a reason, or you did something wrong to make this happen. And, um, and as chaplains, we can be there to, uh, to kind of love them through it and maybe, maybe hold them in that pain. Well, the biggest thing that we discuss is existential issues. You know, mm. why is it happening? Why do we even feel so terrible when we're grieving? And anticipatory grief is even more challenging than regular grief because it's so full of anxiety and the unknown. Yeah. Uh, 
And I can tell you that a lot of people have not even considered uh, our own mortality. And my friend, who's a, a big proponent of uh, uh, body theology uh, that is not being taught in the Christian world, she feels that people have been given a disservice by only talking about ethereal things, about heaven and about resurrection, but not really talking about our own um, you know, challenges in, in limitations as human beings. So there is a, there's a gap, there's a huge um, chasm between um, you know, what people think in their minds and, and believe in their hearts and what they experience in real life. And in, uh, in chaplaincy, they, they talk about uh, having your experience um, influence your theology, mm. but not too many people are that deep in their thinking that, you know, every single thing that they experience, even, uh, you know, waking up in the morning, uh, participating in life has a connotation related to your faith and your, uh, your walk with God. So uh, there needs to be more um, work in a deeper level on how everything affects us and how um, we can find hope in the most challenging things without getting all um, hyper spiritual and only talking mm. about things that um, we, most of us haven't even experienced. And, right. and that's really the, the challenge sometimes of how do you communicate um, biblical concepts or things that are very, um, you know, out there and relate them to your daily life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree that the existential stuff is, um, yeah, that's a lot of the conversation um, that I experienced as well. I'm actually thinking about when you when you said existential, and we don't think about our own mortality, especially a lot of people don't think about the mortality of their children. It's not supposed to happen, right? Like you're not supposed to outlive your kids. You're just not. Um, and it happens and it's devastating. And so I remember, um, I mean, this would happen a lot. I have one specific mother and daughter in my mind. And the little girl was around six or seven. Um, and she was dying and her mom knew that her mom knew she was dying, but she, you know how it is with children where we pull out all the stops and we keep trying and trying and trying children are resilient and children are amazing. Um, and sometimes it's their time to go to heaven. And, um, anyways, the mom, when I was talking to her, she said, I'm not ready yet. I can't go there. I can't imagine it. So you as a chaplain, what would you say to a parent who's kind of walking through the unbearable and is, is kind of denying that this could happen? Well, sometimes there's not much to say. And, and I tell people that honestly, because I've met some chaplains, they try to debate people theologically or give them the answers. Mm. And they feel that the job is of a minister is to have answers and to give people hope in a forced way mm-hmm. as compared to in an organic process of helping people process and uh, come up with their own answers. So I think that that's the most important thing that a true counselor, because, you know, they say that you can't call yourself a counselor unless you're LPC or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, counseling people in a spiritual way you're helping them realize things. You're not imposing uh, ideas on them. Right. And I think that's a big problem in, in, in a few religions where you have to have the right answers and the right views to be in good standing before God. And that's ridiculous. When, when none of us um, have experienced the same experience that person is going through, and if they're not ready to, uh, to think of someone dying or going to heaven or... Um, 
you know, you can use all kinds of euphemisms like going with God, uh, passing to a, a better life or something like that. But if they haven't um, considered that or they don't see that as, as a good option, like it seems like a horrendous thing, you don't want to push them to to come to any realization. You want to understand them where they're at. So sometimes it's better not to say anything and just to uh, agree with them. It's like, mm. you know, that, that's, that's terrible. That's, that's horrible. Um, you don't deserve this. You don't um, like a lot of times the validation that comes just from uh, hearing someone out um, does more than actually saying anything specific. So the one thing that always stuck with me is that people want to be heard, understood, and loved. So if you can do those Wait, three things. Pause, pause. Let's say it again. People want to be heard, understood. Heard, understood. So if you can do any of those, uh, it's better if you do all three. But yeah. if you can do um, as much as possible of those three things, you are doing good work. Um, yes. So hearing someone out, understanding. You know, we had a debate. Uh, I'm part of a group where we provide uh, grief support for families in the military. Mm. And one of the, the moms that lost uh, an adult child, she hates when people say, I understand. Because she's like, you can never understand what I right. went through. Right. Even though you've had a similar death of a loved one. The understanding component really upsets her. But what people mean when they say, I understand, it's like, I can see how horrible it is. I, I can, um, you know, it's like people say, uh, I can only imagine but at least you're trying to imagine you you are um, making an effort there are Mm. some people that don't even want to think about it and that's that's the worst thing you can do to someone and then the love component there's a lot of people that go out there and they say i love you i I love like they use love too uh willy-nilly like true love for me is compassion and and sacrifice um so this idea of being available it's an expression of love. Um, so I always tell people, if someone tells you I'm here for you, take them up on it because um, some people might just say it as a nicety, anything you need, I'm here for you. Yeah. Like if they're true friends, they will be there for you. And if you ask them for something, they'll show up. It, they won't just give you their card and disappear. Um, so love it can be manifested in many ways, but I think uh, the what people need at a time of grief it's a good friend and it's someone who cares. So caring and, and expressing interest in their experience goes a long way. Yes. Yes. And I'm actually, um, when you, as you say this, I'm like reflecting back to my own loss and like the people that I, I was so grateful for are the people who made me feel heard, understood and loved. And of course the people who did all three, I mean, it's just like, you can't put a price on it. It's just so important. Um, but then I'm also thinking, I'm trying to look for this message. Um, I saw from a good friend of mine, uh, who, who's very knowledgeable about my my loss. She saw, um, there's this viral post that's going around about a mom who experienced a miscarriage and one of her friends messaged her. And rather than saying like, Oh, I can't imagine. Or, Oh, I understand. This person says I'm checking on you. Please choose from the following one. I pick your kids up anytime after three 30 today. And I show them a good time with dinner, which would be Chick-fil-A. And I'm getting some for you too. Two, I send DoorDash dinner to you. This, val- uh, this offer is valid any day of the week. Three, 
I'm going to target today and I pick up anything you need and drop it off at your doorstep or four, I can send prayers and good vibes and you can politely define, decline any tangible services. So this person loved and heard her grief so much that she was willing to go out of her way and like, not just say, call on me if you need something, but like here, I'm going to help you. And here you choose what's most helpful. I thought that was just amazing. Well, to have some concrete ways that you can help someone to me makes a huge difference. And like, I actually want to take somebody out. Like, is there anything I can do for you? It's like, yeah, go get me a pizza. Yeah. Like, what, yeah. like don't ever, don't offer something you can't provide. Yep. Yep. And, and it's sad to find out that um, there are a lot of people who are hurt because people did not come through. Yeah. Yep. Promise, you know, as their dying loved one was there, like, hey, um, I'll be checking on you every month or I'll, I'll do this, I'll do that. And they don't do it. And of course, you got to think that people sometimes they can't handle their own grief and they run away or they, they're scared. They don't know how to relate. So mm-hmm. we have to... Um, Another overused phrase is give people grace. Yeah. We have to be gracious towards others. Uh, but when it, you're in a, in your raw state of grief, it's really hard to, to have uh, extra compassion for others when you mm-hmm. feel like they might not be in compassion towards you. Um, so I also give people permission to be angry, to be even hateful. Like if, if someone hurt your loved one or, or something horrible happened, uh, there's this uh, idea that you should always be all forgiving and all merciful and stuff like that. And like, that's uh, superhuman. There are right. points in life that you have to have um, come to terms with your own anger and, and let it out. So there, I, I feel that religious folks uh, create even more stress on those who are grieving because they have so many expectations. And I've always had those situations where I go into someone's house and people put on a show for me. They tell me that they're doing great, that everything is wonderful, uh, that they're handling it. And then I find out from the nurses and the social worker and everybody else that it's the opposite, that they're actually falling apart. Oh. It's almost like they don't want to get in trouble with God or they want to put on the best face. And I've actually had the opposite where they'll tell other people that everything's fine and then they open up to me. Mm. So it's very, very interesting to, to see how everybody relates to a chaplain. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about the times when I was called to a room, like we need the chaplain. It was, it was interesting because it was almost like a shorter stay. Like we just want you to pray for us. Happy to do it. Happy to help. And then sometimes when they didn't ask for me, I would be in there for an hour and a half, you know, and we're having like really deep conversations and they're opening up. So you just never know if it's going to be you or someone else. But when, when a person can be truly authentic about the way they're feeling, whether that be with a chaplain or someone else, um, it really does help with the grieving process. Well, the ability to make people comfortable and for them to open up, I think is a gift because, mm. you know, you've been in situations where someone walks in and they're the most well-intended, they're the most uh, caring or loving people, but they just don't have the, you don't feel accepted, you don't feel um, heard, like they have, um, they just lack that like initial connection. So yeah. you you shut down. Uh, so I think that uh, what makes a good chaplain is someone that has the innate ability to talk to anyone about anything and, yeah. and make friends or, or connect with people. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you walk in and people are like, what do you want? And what can I do for you? 
and you leave it at that, you don't force yourself or try to create a connection when it's not uh, going to happen naturally. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, something actually that I think is good for the listeners to hear too, is this goes for whatever religion or lack of religion, um, because spirituality can include religion and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so I think, you know, David and you and I have different ways of assessing, of accessing God. Um, and yet we're both chaplains and we both have a lot in common, (laughs) I think. Um, it's a human experience. I think that, um, what makes us uh, be able to support anyone in any, from any background is a sense of understanding that we're all in this together as human mm. beings and that nothing makes someone more lofty or, or, you know, it's like God is not a respecter of persons. So I think in some circles, there's this idea that there's the redeem and then there's the, the deplorables or whatever, like there's a lot of spiritual arrogance. And that's something that Martin King talked about where, there are some uh, religious folks or spiritual folks even because spirituality can be corrupted just like religion to the point yep. of making some people feel like they, they have all the answers and that they have some access to God that others don't. And what it really is, is that we're all humbly uh, trying to, to serve the same creator. And those that don't know him or, or have a relationship with God have a spark of God within them. So if we're able to connect with that, then we have, you know, something to bring to the table. If, if we come in with uh, this idea that people are lost or they're confused or they don't know anything, then the conversation is not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is like a full circle, right? To what you were saying earlier is if I'm, you know, if I'm talking to this parent who's experiencing the, the imminent, death of her child. Um, and she says, I can't go there. It's better to listen than to say like, you know, to really push her like, okay, like you are going through hell. Like, let's just sit in that. Let's sit in, um, where you are right now, rather than telling her a certain theology or, um, pushing my views on her. Yeah. In- the, one of the things that comes up all the time is the different way that people grieve. So, um, you know, I don't like when we over uh, psychoanalyze people, but there is certain psychological things that we need to consider. So one thing that stuck with me is that, you know, there are people that become very hyper and mm. they want to do a lot of stuff when they're grieving and that's what gets them going. And then there's other people who shut down and they just don't want anything to do with anyone. And there's those that run away and they want to, um, you know, grieve by themselves. So you see in families, a lot of competition. So there's the one parent or or loved one that gets so hyper and wants to do stuff and feels angry that no one else is involved in the, in the arrangements or whatever. And then there's the other person who just doesn't want to talk and they get mad at them because they're not expressing their feelings. And then the person who runs away and doesn't want to deal with it it's seen as the coward that is not getting involved, but it's, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of um, misdirected, um, you know, almost like anger to the people who are all experiencing the same grief, but in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to relate that to the families that we need to understand that um, there, there is no right way of grieving and there's also no right way to get involved in the in all the, the details of the situation. 
because it can truly become a competition where it creates um, havoc in families because someone didn't show up, someone didn't give you what you needed at that time. And it's just, um, since it's something like we've said that you don't even expect, how do you um, wonder that people are going to react the way that you want them to react? Mm -hmm. They're going to give you what you need when they themselves are devastated and struggling. So there, there's a lot of long impacting things that happen from uh, the grief that comes from losing a loved one. Well, that helps to um, shed light on why so many couples will struggle after the loss of a, of a baby or a pregnancy um, whenever they might grieve in different ways, still grieving, but then there might be a little bit of um, anger towards each other. If they're grieving in different ways, I had honestly, I've been in this work a long time and I have never heard it put so eloquently. So thank you for that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Someone who's hyper-organized, someone who runs away and someone who, uh, what was the last one? Uh, Either shut down. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think you listening, if you, if you think about a loss that you've experienced in your family, we can all think of those three people um, all grieving in their own way. Yeah. And we deal with um, people who are chronically ill or um, have a diagnosis of, you know, of imminent death. And you can see how um, spouses would get into it with each other as they're taking care of someone who's dying. So Mm -hmm. if a a kid has a a terminal illness and it takes, you know, six years for the illness to to overcome them, there can be a lot of conflict and a lot of problems because one parent feels that they're the only ones that understand how to take care of the kid through the process. And then the other person feels inadequate or they start, um, you know, fighting over other things. They have a lot of frustration just with the realities of what's happening. And we've seen, um, you know, grandparents or, or friends or something come through to give people a break or to help in the, in the caring of the child. And that does a, a great, um, makes a great difference. But then you have the issues of people being in your home and mm-hmm. also in the family conflict and stuff like that. And then they have other kids. So um, I like what you were quoting where there was concrete ways that you can help someone through the either the dying process or uh, after someone passes that you have to um, come up with a plan somehow and understand where everybody's at and what can they do to assist in the in this whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. This has been so insightful. I love having people like you on the show to where I'm like, I know that I've been in this work a long time. And then um, to have someone like you on where I can have things put in a different way that really resonate with me. And I'm sure they resonate with our listeners as well. Um, so David, um, you've, you've taught us so much, uh, but before we're not going to let you hang up until you tell us, is there a generic or a cliche phrase that just really bugs you? Well, um, I came to terms with this because, um, you got to think about it. So, um, there was a, a young lady who had died at the hospital and it was a evangelical family. And one of the parents said, we have to be strong. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's seldom where you actually do this, but we've been encouraged in, in our work to challenge people yep. and you have to have a relationship with them. You have to uh, do it in the most kind, loving way. So I, I, in front of everyone, I said, um, 
what do you mean by being strong? Mm-hmm. And the person was kind of like taken aback because they didn't expect to be to be asked that. And what I realized is that when people tell you you have to be strong as someone just died or you're getting ready to lose someone, they don't really mean don't cry, don't grieve, don't struggle. What they mean is don't despair. And oh, so what we really need to listen to the emotions behind the words. So yeah, don't despair. That's deeply theological. I have not thought about it like that because I always got a little frustrated when I heard people say, be strong or try and be strong. Because um, I always heard it as don't cry. And I, I think it's important to cry, but yeah, don't despair. Hmm. That's good stuff. So I tell people when, when I meet them, my job is to help you not despair. I want to instill hope. And hope is such a um, nebulous thing mm-hmm. because, you know, depending on, on your religious background, you can think about all kinds of lofty things. But this idea of there is um, an end to this, like, you know, losing someone never goes away, but there is a manageable um way to deal with your grief as time progresses as you find resources and you process and 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 learn uh, ways to um, not focus on the negative stuff that can make you become destructive in your pain yeah so so hope for me in the grieving process is learning to um look at other um you know is it kind of sounds cliche also to focus on the positive, but um, I really feel that if we only thought about the negative things of life, we would despair and we would truly not want to live anymore. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you focus on uh, things that are um, still life giving um, because as devastating and as earth shattering as losses, there's still other joys that we experience in life. Right. And, ways that you can remember someone that gives you um you know a sense of fulfillment that that's that's our goal to to impart that ability to to look at other um things and not become so um it's almost like tunnel vision where the dark cloud that takes over you when you lose someone is so overwhelming that life has no meaning or no interest anymore right can dissipate that somehow if you can love people and encourage them that's the ultimate goal so yeah in in a small way don't despair that's a good tagline for this episode huh don't despair don't despair chaplain david is here (laughs) we're all good um david thank you so much for joining us uh i for one love this discussion um it's right up my alley and just talking to the deeper theological um, components of just such a horrific loss that so many families have experienced. Uh, We're grateful for the work you do and um, we're grateful you took time for us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And just the same thing, you know, we, we want people to find um, things that give them strength and, and hope. And if, uh, if you are going through uh, something of this nature, uh, just know that, there are many people that care and that we want the best thing for you. And uh, the best way to make someone proud, even, uh, you know, a loss like a child is to, to keep living and, and to, um, 
to honor them through the way we love others and the way we um, keep their memory alive. Mm, yep. I feel that. I feel that to my core. Thank you again, David. Thank you. My pleasure.